All right, so hopefully you've uh, got your Bible open or your device at Isaiah 50. We're looking at that whole small chapter this morning. The topic there, the unidentified servant in Isaiah is the epitome of those who freely choose to remain a slave by having their ear pierced with a tool called an awl. The title of the message, I'm all ears. Let's have a word of prayer. You see what I did there? Father, we love you and thank you so much for the opportunity to be here as a fellowship of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful to be called a church, Lord, a called out group that belongs to you. Lord, um, the believers here have come to be ministered to, to be equipped in the word, Lord, so we can go out and do the work of the ministry that you've called us to in the world. A lot of us are hurting, Lord, physically, spiritually, emotionally. There's uh, relationships, Lord, that are askew and perhaps about to break up. There's so many needs, Lord, that, that it's incredible, even some that we don't even know about, we haven't even articulated yet in our own life. But you, Lord, see it all. You see our hearts, you see the fullness of them. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in each one of our hearts through the wonder of your word, your living word, as God the Holy Spirit, who lives in us and also is in this place, would minister to us. And Lord, we know that there are those here that are not saved. They're not Christians. They've never been born again. They have not been declared righteous by you and justified. I pray today that they would understand that the Holy Spirit would remove from their heart the veil and that they would see that what they must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved by grace through faith. And so, Lord, work on those hearts, work on our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. We stood and watched while God abandoned us, and then we did the best we could. That's author Alice Hoffman's conclusion as to why there is so much evil in the world. God must have abandoned us. I dare say it summarizes the worldview of the majority of atheists and agnostics. It's one thing for an author who writes about magic to paint God that way. We can dismiss it as ignorance. It's entirely different when God's own people express feelings of abandonment. Isaiah's Jewish listeners accused the Lord of abandoning them. They forgot one not insignificant detail. They had brought their troubles upon themselves. It wasn't God who had abandoned them. No, it was the opposite. It's for their iniquities and their transgressions that they were being punished. You and I have not abandoned God. What might you be blaming him for or accusing him of not loving you for or of delaying until it was too late? Maybe nothing, maybe something, for some, maybe everything. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus never abandons you. And number two, Jesus always advocates for you. And so let's talk about abandonment in verse, uh, beginning in verse one. Megachurch pastor Joshua Harris authored the wildly popular book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It, it changed an entire generation in terms of dating in the Christian world. Not too long ago, he kissed Jesus goodbye. After announcing his divorce, he renounced his faith. He said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. 
By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. I looked up deconstruction for you. Faith deconstruction, also known as deconstructing faith, evangelical deconstruction, the deconstruction movement, or simply deconstruction, is a phenomenon within American evangelicalism in which Christians rethink their faith and jettison previously held beliefs, sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as Christians. It is closely related to the exvangelical movement. I looked up exvangelical for us. Exvangelical is a social movement of people who have left evangelicalism, especially white evangelical churches in the United States, for atheism, agnosticism, progressive Christianity, or any other religious belief or lack of religious belief. People in the movement are called exvangelicals or exvies. Abandon Jesus, and you're not an apostate who denies the Lord who bought you. You're a hip deconstructionist or a trendy exvangelical meeting your friends down at Starbucks with your T-shirt and espousing these philosophies. About three in 10 U.S. adults, 29%, are religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, nothing in particular when they're asked about their religious identity. They're just not affiliated. The percentage grows with each new poll. Now, we're in the section of Isaiah in which he is introducing the Jewish Messiah. He calls him the servant. We know it's Jesus, not because we want it to be, but because for one thing, uh, some of these verses in Isaiah are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And, and, you know, it tells us, hey, this person that was being talked about as the servant, the Messiah, is Jesus. And so we begin again in verse one, obviously, and then it says, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Now we jump right into an illustration in verse one. The Lord compares he and they to a family, husband, wife, kids. It's all okay to call them dysfunctional as long as we understand it doesn't apply to the Lord. He doesn't have any dysfunction to add to it. It is so Garden of Eden to blame others, including God, is it not? Remember when God came to Adam, he says, everything would have been great except for this woman. And he went to Eve and Eve said, we were doing fine until this serpent came along. And so you just kind of pass on down and blame others. And we do that a lot if you really look for it. Their situation was really of their own doing. God had not abandoned them. They had abandoned God. Translators have a tough time with this verse, it seems. Some of your versions make it sound like the husband did give his wife a certificate of divorce as required by Jewish law and a receipt for selling the children into slavery. Other versions are just as adamant that the Lord has done no such thing, that it is a uh, maybe even a possibility, but he hasn't done that, and they're just accusing him of it. The I've done no such thing fits best with the context, I think. The Lord challenged them to prove his unfaithfulness. He had not divorced them, or else he would produce a certificate of divorce. 
as required by law, and he had no debts to repay, therefore he had not sold them. But either way, uh, it's still, that's not the main point. And I could be missing something, but this is an illustration. It's not a teaching about marriage and divorce. Illustrations don't determine Bible doctrine. You don't teach the doctrine from the illustration. The illustration is used to help you with uh, the doctrine. And so uh, there are uh, scriptures, for, uh, perhaps in uh, Jeremiah, I know chapter three, uh, there is some talk about Jehovah and uh, separating from and divorcing Israel, uh, but that is direct teaching. This is just an illustration. So we're not gonna launch into who is the wife of Jehovah, who's the wife of Jesus, when all of this happens. That's for another time. And so God's just saying, hey, in the situation you find yourself in, all of a sudden, God has, you know, Israel has rejected him, and he says, you know, this is like a, a family where the husband and father has done nothing wrong. It says here in verse 2, when I came, there was no man. Why, when I called, there was none to answer. Do you remember I Love Lucy? Who remembers I Love Lucy? Classic television, right? What did Lu Ricky say when he came home from work? Lucy, I'm home. That's right. Now, actually, he said that very infrequently. I thought he did every episode, but it's very infrequent. Some say as little as five times in the whole, like, 180 episodes. But the idea was he was coming home. He was going to be greeted by Lucy. And, of course, in their case, something crazy had happened. But, you know, it was a one big happy family. The faithful husband and father here comes home after a hard day's work. He says, I'm home, and his wife is gone. She's abandoned him and the children. Nevertheless, the kids hold dad responsible for all their distresses. I mean, it's a really ugly, terrible situation for the dad and father and husband to be in. And so he says in verse 2, is my hand shortened at all that it can't redeem? Have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up seas. I make the rivers a wilderness. Fish stink because there's no water and die of thirst. And so the Lord is saying here, you would not greet me as the head of this household. You think I've abandoned you. And in reality, I have the power to both redeem and deliver you, but you refuse it. He didn't do it because they wouldn't stop sinning. And especially the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, because they lived in the area of Jerusalem where the temple was, there is a strong belief in the book of Jeremiah, you'll see it, that God would never judge them because the temple stood and that he so revered his temple and the place where his name was, the city of Jerusalem. He so loved Jerusalem that he would not bring judgment against it. And God said, I will, I must, because I care more for you than real estate and structures. Uh, and so we never want to fall into the thinking that, oh, oh God can't judge us as a nation. I'm, I'm talking about nations now, not individuals. Um, he could, he will, if we don't have a massive turnaround and seek him. And so he still had the power to do both. And this is what freaks people out about the allowance of evil in the world. They know that God is capable of stopping it, and they, they want him to, Right? Why does this, I mean, even as we're talking here this morning, how many, I don't know how many, you know, how to even categorize how much evil is going to happen in the world, how much suffering, how much tragedy, right? And, and um, minute by minute and hour by hour. But you know what? 
the human race is in the same condition that the Jews were, saying, well, God's abandoned us. It's his fault. When people refuse to look inwardly and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm a sinner. God isn't killing people. God isn't raping people. God isn't blowing people up. God isn't doing these things. People like me are. It's our fault. We need to stop and change. God's arm isn't so short he cannot save us. We've waved him off. We don't want his help. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. There are 14 questions asked in these verses. Asking question after question is something God employs to reset our worldview. We come with our objections, and then he stops us at some point and he starts asking us these questions. In Job chapter 38 and 39, the Lord asked Job 77 questions, and Job is absolutely overwhelmed by the Lord's power tempered by grace. It becomes a profound reset for him. God never fatigues, he never tires. He doesn't need retraining for perishable skills. Why doesn't he flex his spiritual muscles more often? He's not a poser. Real strength in the church age is revealed in our weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong. We can't help it that we live in an age in which God has said, hey, you're gonna be like Jesus, like he was in his first coming. You're going to be humble and meek, and uh, your, your strength is gonna be in weakness so that people can see that your strength is me. And that's been working pretty good for people getting saved for a couple of thousand years. Uh, and it'll be that way until God takes us home and starts a new phase of what he's doing, uh, the great tribulation and beyond. The image of dead, stinking fish dying is a throwback to the plagues God brought upon Egypt when he redeemed and delivered the Hebrew slaves for the first time. He had 10 plagues to choose from, plus hundreds of other miracle signs and wonders in Israel's history after that. Why choose this one? I mean, is this the first thing that pops into your mind when you minister to somebody? I'm gonna tell them about stinking fish. You know, God, can you imagine, think about somebody you've been witnessing to and say, hey, I can't wait to tell you this. What? God is able to dry up rivers and make fish stink. Okay, maybe I, maybe I should stop talking to you. Well, I don't know either why he chose that one, but he does. And, and the idea I get from it is that when we talk to people, we are, uh, well, these are people Jesus would talk to. Maybe, uh, you know, somebody we're talking to is like the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery or whatever it might be. And Jesus is wanting to tell us, hey, this is what I would say to your coworker or to your wife or to your husband or to your kids or whoever. This is what I would say to them. So say that because you represent me. And in order to know that, then we have to spend some time with the Lord so that he can give us uh, kind of a perspective. Uh, and even if we don't have the exact words, we, you know, we just, hey, Lord, just lead me in this conversation. I don't wanna go into it you know, preloaded with what I'm going to share because this person might not care for prophecy or this person might not care for this or that. And that's not how you want to reach them. And so uh, let's just be flexible and open to the Holy Spirit. Verse three, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Charles Spurgeon applied this to the three hours of darkness when Jesus was on the cross and this is what he said. We read at high noon, the sun was veiled and there was darkness over all the land for three black hours. Wonder of wonders, he who hung bleeding there had wrought that mighty marvel. 
The sun had looked upon him hanging on the cross and as if in horror had covered its face and traveled on in tenfold night. The tears of Jesus quenched the light of the sun. Had he been wrathful, he might have put out its light forever. But his love not only restored that light, it has given us light uh, a, a thousand times more precious, even the light of everlasting life and joy. As the darkness of that day diminished, Jesus announced in a commanding voice, it is finished. Even though he had been on the cross and obviously worn, the Bible specifies that it was a commanding, loud voice, unexpected, it is finished. The time to conquer death by dying had come. We're gonna skip verse four for now. Don't worry, we will, as they say, circle back to unpack it. That's, I'm trying to be more modern. If I hear one more person say unpack, I'm going to go off on them. I'm sorry. <laughs> Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, we learn that indentured servants who desired to remain in their master's household permanently had their ears pierced. You shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. That is what is meant by opening the ear. First service, I had this thought that we would kind of freak new believers out, tell them that they have to be baptized, but they first have to have their ear pierced with an awl, and, and that we do it on this doorpost right here. We'll put some holes there and stuff, you know, and just say, hey, Deuteronomy. I mean, you know, it's not me. Take it up with the Lord, you know. It's just, they said, well, I already got my ear pierced. I said, not with an awl, not, not like we're talking about here. But anyway, I won't. We're not going to do that, only because they won't let me. But anyway, <laughs> adding humanity to his deity through the virgin birth was the penultimate opening of the ear. It was the greatest moment of service in the history of the world, Jesus coming as a man. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. See, it's verses like this that tell us that the ultimate servant is Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the person in the New Testament who fulfills these things. Our context is the accusation that God has abandoned us, leaving us to fend for ourselves. If ever there was a time that the Lord would have called it quits and abandoned the human race, abandoned you and me, it would have been that long night and subsequent day the false arrests and trials and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't quit. He dug in flint-faced, he said. Now listen, if he didn't abandon you then, he never will. He endured the pain and the shame of the cross for the joy of saving you. He's like that hero who won't give up his comrades no matter how much he's tortured, right? You wouldn't have to torture me. Just ask me, what do you want to know? I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you more than you want to know. Just, I, I want to keep, uh, keep my fingernails and all the other things that you had in mind. You know, I, I'm, I'm fine with all that. And, but, you know, we admire the guy who's like, beat me all you want, kill me if you want. I'm not going to really, and Jesus on the cross. I mean, there's no doubt he could have come down from the cross. Even the, the crowd was mocking him that, that, you know, why doesn't he? And I mean, that's, that's you, know, the, the, you know, the epitome of what Jesus was going through. And he said, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on the cross. 
And, and uh, even though you guys you know, are yet sinners, I, I'm gonna do this for you. It's for the joy of saving you. Verse seven, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. How can a man be beaten so thoroughly that he barely looked human and yet say it was not a disgrace? How can he, the most innocent man ever, die the death of a common criminal nailed naked on the main road into Jerusalem and say, I'm not ashamed? Well, he said, because the Lord God will help me. The father did not help him in ways we would like for him to help us. He didn't stop the crucifixion. He didn't immediately come and smite the enemies of the Lord. In fact, the entire episode still comes across as the greatest religious failure in the history of the world to those who have rejected Christ. Oh, but to you and I who know Christ, right? God did help him. He helped him through it. He got him through it. He was with him through it so that he could complete the work that they had talked about completing before the foundation of the world, and that is the salvation of the human race of you and I who are saved. And what a beautiful thing that is. And so, I, you know, if, how can you be disgraced and shamed when the result is so beautiful? How did the Father help Jesus? Well, in many ways that we could talk about, I'm sure, but I put near or on the top of the list that they shared fellowship with each other as the Lord was on the cross. The one place in the Bible that that seems uh, contrary is Psalm 22, where the writer says, my God, my God, why, has you, why have you forsaken me? People say, see that? The father turned his anthropomorphic back on the son. Well, he didn't, he couldn't. Read on in Psalm 22 to verse 24. It says, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. And so the opening verses express King David's feelings during a severe trial. He felt as if the Lord had abandoned him. But the psalm shifts early on and talks about a man being crucified. Of course, that man is Jesus, we know. And he says, God didn't abandon me. He didn't turn his face from me. There was fellowship between the Father and Son on the cross, and I think that's what really got Jesus through it more than anything else. You know, as people will argue and say, maybe you're even thinking, because this is what I did the first time I encountered this, I thought, well, you know, God can't look upon sin. He had to turn his back on Jesus, and Jesus had to do this all by himself, all alone. God doesn't look upon sin. In the book of Job, Satan is in heaven, and as I understand the Bible, he still has access to heaven now until way into the revelation, way into the future when he's cast down to earth finally and fully. So what, God is blindfolded in heaven? He goes, excuse me, I can't look on evil, uh, so I can't see the world, I can't see Gene. Good news, but anyway, you know, that kind of thing. And so all of these, are, there, there doesn't need to be, you know, I know it's a big emotional thing, and people really get into this. You've probably heard sermons like this, you know, about, all that it meant for God to turn his back on Jesus. There's no teaching on that in the Bible about you know, what happened when God turned his back on Jesus because he didn't. He says, he didn't despise me, he has heard me. Uh, and, and so all I'm saying is that Jesus and his fellowship with the Lord, with God, got him through. Just like your fellowship with Jesus, sharing in the fellowship of sufferings, 
is what gets you through. It isn't the Lord delivering you that gets you through. It isn't him taking the trial away. It's him being with you in the trial. You and I are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. They're in the fiery furnace with Jesus. And they've already told Nebuchadnezzar, we're not gonna bow down because the Lord will deliver us. And if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not gonna bow down. And in their case, they were saved through that furnace with the Lord. Remember Nebuchadnezzar looked in, he says, we threw three guys in here, right? If I do my math correctly, there's four. And the fourth one looks like the son of God. And that's who you will be with when you go through these terrible trials. Jesus always advocates for you, verses eight through 11. The scene in Isaiah shifts to heaven. We would say it's a post-resurrection scene. In verse eight, it says, he is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come to me. Justified here is a reference to a judge. This has a courtroom vibe to it, this whole section. Having endured the cross, Jesus can stand in a heavenly tribunal and declare total and convincing victory. If any adversary wishes to contend with him, then as King Theoden of Rohan said, let them come and he will deal with them. Jesus obviously, you know, didn't die for himself. He had no sin. He died for the human race. He died for you and for me. And when you believe him, God withdraws your sin from you and puts Jesus' righteousness into your heavenly account. What is true of him becomes true of you. You'll be accused and have to contend with enemies, sure. But you will always do it in the context of Jesus advocating for you. And so even if the devil himself stood before God and said, look at Gene, I mean, what a, what a joke that is. He does this and he thinks that and this is what, how can you endure this? God would look over and he'd say, all I see is my son, Jesus Christ, because you know what? Gene is in him, saved in him, loved by him. My son died for him. You know, I know he's not perfect, but he will be. He's on his way. We're sanctifying him day by day. And when he receives his glorified body, then you'll see the ultimate. So in the meantime, you know, there's no one who can contend with you. You can kind of mess things up by sinning willfully and habitually to the sense that God says, the fellowship is broken now. We have to talk about your sin. You, you, you gotta quit doing that because it's against my word. It's contrary, it's immoral, it's illegal, it's whatever it is. And, you know, it's hurting our fellowship. I love you. I died so that you didn't have to do that, so don't do it and, and get back into fellowship. But he will not abandon you and he will always advocate for you. Those are foundational. You can't have any more assurance than that. Verse nine, surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is the Old Testament counterpart to if God is for us, who can be against us? The moth is reminiscent of Jesus encouraging us to think always about heaven where our future rewards are. No moths can ruin your clothing up there. They have those moth zappers at each pearly gate, you know. <laughs> no, that's not true. No death in heaven even for the moths. I guess there'll be friendly moths. Moths creep me out. Have you ever seen you know, the big moths? You know, like the really big ones? No? Maybe I just do because I have hallucinations now, but... Uh, 
I almost couldn't leave my house one time in Running Springs. It was a, you walked out the door to a little walkway. It was a you know, mountain house. And as I walked out, there was like this moth right here on the wall. I mean, it was, it gets bigger every time I tell the story, but <laughs> I was really scared. And so we were like around the corner trying to get it to move and it would just go over a little bit. And so I missed, this is Mothra. And it's, it's, it's coming for me. So anyway, we finally ran by it. And I don't know how, I think it just left on its own. Uh, Surely the Lord will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, blah, 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 I already said that. Uh, How will he help? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely, uh, freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also helps, uh, rather, who also makes intercession for us. The Lord helps, and we're to believe that he does with or without the evidence uh, of what he's doing in the background. I don't know what God's doing, and maybe I'm going through a trial or a tragedy or a disease or an illness or whatever it is, and God says, I'm helping you. We're having fellowship. Well, where's this gonna lead, Lord? You don't need to know that. I know where it's gonna lead, you know, you figure out, you know, did you ever go somewhere with somebody and you trust, you trust them to know where they're going, right? Say, hey, do you know where you're going? Yeah, absolutely. You end up in, you know, South Central LA or something, you know, you're like, hey, I don't think this is where we want to be, uh, you know, and stuff. But the Lord says, hey, I know where we're going. I know how we're going to get there. I know everything. Just relax. And I am with you as we get there. That's the important part. Fear the Lord in this context was a synonym for those who had been declared righteous by God. My dad used to call Christians born-agains. He goes, oh, you born-agains. And I think that might be a little bit of what's going on here. Oh, you fearers, you God-fearers. Obedience is beyond us without help. Praise the Lord, we not only have help, he has given us the helper, God the Holy Spirit, to permanently indwell us individually and corporately. When we get saved, aren't we removed from the domain of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light? Well, yeah, but you remain on earth among the English, as the Amish put it. I love that. We use that sometimes in our house when we're saying goodbye. Pam will say, be careful out there among the English, uh, and, and the Amish saying, because the English are like, you know, immoral, uh, you know, sinners, and the Amish are, you know, right on. So... Um, I tell you, I wish I could build furniture like the Amish, but that's about it when it comes to, if I could have rumspringa and furniture, right? But Thick veil uh, prevents believers from seeing the Lord. One commentator likens Satan's veil to virtual reality goggles. You see something, but it's a fantasy. It's a game with deadly stakes. We have had our goggles removed, and we see reality. When, when you look around and, and hear what's going on in the world today, always, for a while, you're a little bit freaked out, and it's like, oh, what's going on? How could somebody think that or do that or whatever? And you say, oh, wait a minute. There's a spiritual aspect to this that we're not factoring in. It's like what's going on between Hamas and Israel. Sure, it's ancient you know, hardships, and it's land, and it's all of this stuff, but part of it has to do with the red heifers. That's crazy, isn't it? No. And and so everything that's going on, when you don't understand it, and it doesn't make sense, there's something spiritual going on that isn't being told. 
whether it's the devil or some other involvement. Or, and so, you know, there is a spiritual thing going on in our world. Don't forget it. And so verse 11, look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The unbelievers in verse 11 kindle their own fire. Religion and science and psychology and philosophy, politics, they all send out sparks, but it's never sufficient to kindle a fire in terms of uh, purifying or making you right for the Lord. Here's an easy way of thinking about this. You can sing Amazing Grace or you can sing I Did It My Way. That's the choice. And everybody here, anybody anywhere who's not singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, you're singing, hey, I did it my way. And imagine that's your defense when you're standing before God at the great white throne before Jesus. So, you know, what do you have to say for yourself? Uh, I'm going to put on some music right now, and this is my defense. I did it all. You know, good Frank Sinatra, but you're, you're headed for torment. I hate that the last word in this chapter is torment. But that's, the, that's what's happening. You arrive at church on a Sunday morning, Wednesday evening, and the special guest is Jesus. After he addresses us, hopefully in a church of Philadelphia kind of way and not Laodicea, he opens it up for Q&A. Jesus, in the Gospels, we see you spending a lot of time alone with our Father. Can you describe a little bit about that? Quoting verse 4, remember we skipped and now we've circled back. You go, Gene. Uh, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. When Jesus was on the earth, morning by morning, he met with his father. More likely, morning by morning actually stands for day after day, but it's, it's wonderful to think of Jesus, uh, God in human flesh, seeking the Father in a devotional way, wanting to spend time with the Father, maybe morning by morning, but certainly all the time, whenever he had time and when he didn't have time. Say, so, hey, I don't have time, but I'm gonna spend all night with, with Dad. Uh, so you guys do what you wanna do, sleep if you want to, go fishing, I don't, I'll be up on the hill uh, spending time with our Father. Uh, and it says here he was being instructed how to speak just the right word to people. Uh, obviously, it gets into the Jesus humanity and having set aside his deity, always still God and man at the same time. But, you know, he said, hey, I want to go through this like a human being so that I can instruct human beings how they ought to live and all. And so uh, the idea was get together with God and spend time with him and let him tell you how to speak or basically, you know, since how we speak comes out of our heart, uh, basically telling you who you are and what you should be about as a Christian, as the example. Learned means those who are instructed. The helper, God the Holy Spirit, who permanently indwells us, is also our resident teacher and counselor and comforter. It's arrogant to think that God has abandoned us. Evil is not his doing. It is ours for our parents choosing the wages of sin. It seems to me that there are two choices that God have had. Create the universe exactly as described, knowing what our parents would do and 
what he would do about it, or don't create the universe at all. Behind door number one, the incredible sufferings of the human race because of what Adam and Eve did, but there's also the incredible grace of God. And this, man, if, this is the thing that we need to get. If we could really embrace this and make it part of our thinking, where Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time. Think of all the suffering from the point of you know, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden until right now. All the death, all the disease, all the destruction, all the D words that you know, talk about the human race. And just everything that's happening is happening right now. And that is, you know, so, you know, he summarizes that by saying the sufferings of this present time, none of them, all of them collectively, are sufficient to be compared to the glory that awaits those who believe in Jesus Christ. The Lord knew what he was doing. And, you know, I don't want to make more of us than, than we are. I mean, we're simple, wretched creatures. But uh, it must be harder than we think to reach a human heart that's black with sin and to create a being, this is what God is after. He's after a being who can exercise free will without sin. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. Jesus stepped in and he did it and now he offers it to us. You say, well, how can you have free will and not sin? God does. God has absolute free will, but he can never sin. And so that's what's happening. It's not as easy as we think to create a human being like that. And it's taken time. Now, to us, it's been thousands of years. To God, it's a couple of days. A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years, right? It's not a mathematical thing. It doesn't mean to God one day is a thousand years. It just means, hey, for God, it's not been that long. For us, it's been a long time. But as we watch it in the Bible, it progresses to the cross. And then you see all that leads up to it and all that's after that. Uh, and, and that's the glory which will be revealed in us. In the end, everything is going to be all right. Amen?